What a challenging story we come to today, our Lord. Just last week, we saw you very gently welcoming young children, and now you deal very differently with a young man, a young man who, to us, would have seemed very fine, very admirable, very fit. What a lesson you must have for us in this story. So, oh, do teach us, and oh, do help us to hear, to heed, to take to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I taught you when we looked forward at the shape of this section of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew has two sets of three shocking stories. We've seen two. First, the Pharisees come up and they poke Jesus about marriage and divorce, and he gives them an answer that shocks them and then shocks the disciples. And then after talking about marriage, naturally the subject of children come up as parents bring their children for Jesus to pray, and the apostles uh, repel them, but Jesus uh, reproaches his apostles and says that the kingdom of heaven is made up of such as these children, and he lays his hands on them, hugs them, prays for them, blesses them. So after this marriage discussion, after the children, presence of children, your mind might go to, well, if these children are blessed, I wonder what they'll grow up to be like. And look, here comes a young man right now, the sort of young man any Jewish parent would love to have and claim as a son. He's rich, he's accomplished, he's a leader, he's a fine moral and religious young man. And you note that the apostles do not try to keep him away from Jesus. But what's Jesus going to say to him? Is it going to be shocking too? Let's find out. We're going to look at this story in three approaches. First, we'll just go over the whole story in a, a fairly quick running exposition, then we'll talk about what it means. So, Roman numeral one, as you're, uh, I'm sure, filling out your outlines. Getting the flow. We're going to look through this whole story just to see how it flows, how God the Holy Spirit unfolds this encounter for us. First, we see then Jesus and the rich young man, verses 16 through 22, in a series of exchanges between him and the young man. Matthew writes in verses 16 and 17, And look, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do in order that I may have life eternal? But he said to him, Why is it me that you're asking concerning the good? One is he who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, what do we see here? First, we see the young man's good question. Letter A in your outline. Young man's good question. I mean, that is a good question, isn't it? He's asking about eternal life. He's a serious person. Matthew takes us right into it. He says, and look. So he's, he's keeping us moving along towards Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus blesses the children, and he leaves that place. But look, we're not done. Here comes somebody else wanting to talk to Jesus. He's not one of these humble children. He's a very accomplished young man. So he spins us, Matthew does, from one shock to what's going to be the next shock at length. And to look at this young man, I mean, so much about him looks good outwardly. I mean, looks truly, genuinely, really good. For one thing, Matthew expressly says one came up to Jesus. 
He's not part of an entourage. He's not being brought with others like the, like the children. He's not in a group like the Pharisees in the first story. He's just by himself. This is his own quest, his own concern. He's coming up because he wants to talk with Jesus himself. And uh, he is called by Matthew a young man. He's probably in his 20s, maybe his early 30s. He calls him that twice, verses 20 and 22. And Matthew says in verse 22 that he was uh, such a person who had many possessions. Uh, Luke adds more in Luke chapter 18. Luke says that he was a ruler. So perhaps he was an official in the synagogue. He had some position of authority. And Luke says that he was, in fact, exceedingly rich. That's Luke's estimation. So Matthew says he had many possessions. Luke says he was exceedingly rich. And there's many uh, good signs in what he says and how he presents himself. He asks a deep question, not a shallow question. He doesn't ask how he can be more attractive to women. He doesn't ask how he can make more money. He doesn't ask how he can get rid of these headaches. I mean, they're not, they're not anything that anybody would say was a shallow question. He wants to know about eternal life. That's about as deep as it goes. He's thinking about life through eternity in the presence of God and asking Jesus how he can have that and have it with assurance. Has he come to the right place with his question? certainly has. He's come up to Jesus. He hasn't just gone to the rabbis. He's come to God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he calls Jesus teacher, which is not wrong. Now, we may ask later whether he's going far enough in calling Jesus teacher, but he's not wrong. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, for you're right. So I am. He is their teacher. He calls him teacher. He asks the right person a decent question as far as it goes. But there is something else about his question we'll look at more closely later. But there's that much to like about it. He just looks like a terrific young man. I mean, all the lights are green just about. First read through, you'd never expect this story to have an unhappy ending. You'd expect this at least and at last to be a pleasant conversation between somebody and Jesus without any particular shocks to it. And again, I I point out to you that the apostles certainly didn't slow him down. They, they didn't think that the Jesus should be bothered with the children, but when they found this fine, young, accomplished man coming up to Jesus, they said, yep, you go right ahead. You bring your question to him. You are welcome. <laughs> he looked like the sort of guy they wanted with them, apparently. No signs of any hesitation. But then we see Jesus' jarring response in verse 17. Jarring, J-A-R-R-I-N-G. This is startling. It's not polite. He said to him, Why is it me that you are asking concerning the good? One is he who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, how might you have, how might we have, how might I have answered the rich young man? He says, how may I have, what must I do that I may, what good thing must I do that I may have eternal life? And well, many might just say, well, just believe, just receive the gift. I mean, bow your head right now and you can have it right now. But that's not where Jesus goes with him, and not at all where Jesus goes with him. In fact, first he just challenges him, asking him, why is it me? And and uh, that's uh, a bit awkward because I'm trying to give the idea of the Greek word order where Jesus puts up front, why is it me that you're asking concerning the good? Why did you pick me to be the person you would ask about good? There's only one who is good. So... Is he saying that he's not good? No, that's not what he's saying at all. 
We'll talk more later about what he is saying. Jesus stops him with the question. And he's going to challenge the rich young ruler about his view of Jesus, about his view of what is good, and his view about him having eternal life, which is basically everything he just said. We'll look more closely at that later. So here comes the second exchange. Jesus says, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments, which is a fairly standard answer that a a rabbi would give in those days. So here's a follow-up question and answer in verses 18 through 20a. The young man says to him, which ones? Keep the commandments. And so he says to Jesus, which ones? So there's no shock or hesitation at Jesus' command. He he doesn't, he's not going to have any problem with this. He just needs to know which ones he's supposed to keep. Now, how, how might you have responded if Jesus says, there's no one good but God, you want to enter into life, you keep the commandments, what would you say? Might you have said, well, I'll never be as good as God. I mean, am I supposed to keep the commandments so that I can be as good as God? There's no way I can do that. I know the sin in my heart. There's no way I can do that. But in his response, you see, he completely ignores everything Jesus said except the last part. He ignores his challenge. He ignores his question. He just goes straight to the answer. And so what what, what is he showing us? What is the young man showing us here? There's no doubt in his mind that he can keep the commandments. I mean, obviously, he can do that. Just tell me which ones. I'm I'm sure I can. I know I can do this. Just which which ones do you have in mind? Because he's thinking, well, I I think I've kept them all. So what's he even challenging me on? Which commandments are are you talking about? And so we see Jesus' response in verses 18b and 19. And Jesus said this, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Now, what are all those? Where'd they come from? The Ten Commandments, what's called the, the second table of the Ten Commandments. That's really a, a misreading, but it's the idea that the first is all about God. No other gods. Don't make an idol. Don't take God's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath unto the Lord. And the second table is all about horizontal relations. What Jesus says right here, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, and so forth. And then he adds one that's not one of the Ten Commandments, but it's what he will later say is one of the two top commandments when he's asked. He says the top commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, and it's this, which is Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the answer he gives him, which as we'll see is a very interesting answer to give him. And that answer doesn't satisfy the young man because he says, all these I have safeguarded. Now, he's not shocked at all Obviously, he's not taken aback by this at all. He's not, um, what should I say, uh, overwhelmed by the thought of doing this. It's no great thing. No light has gone off in his mind. And he's not really satisfied with this answer because he's feeling something lacking, obviously, or he he wouldn't be asking the question. But he's already done this. He's, He's already kept this formula. If the formula is keep the commandments, he's done it. Now, what thing can you say? What can, what what can you say about him with some confidence? Let me make this easier. What sermon can you be pretty sure that he has never heard in the Gospel of Matthew? The Sermon on the Mount. 
He pretty clearly has never heard and learned from that sermon, no matter how many times Jesus may have preached it. So yes, when he hears, you shall not murder, what is the way that the Jew of Jesus' day would have heard that? You have never physically ended the life of another human being. Well, that's good. <laughs> but what does Jesus say? Have you hated your brother in your heart? Oh, now that digs a lot deeper. Uh, you've never stolen anything, but have you ever wanted something that didn't belong to you? You've never committed adultery, meaning you've never had physical intimacy with somebody you're not married to, but have you lusted for others in your heart? These are the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And after listening to all those, there's no honest person who knows anything about God or himself who would say, yes, I've kept all those commandments from my youth. <laughs> As this young man says, the law has not done its work in his heart. The law has not revealed to him that he is a sinner unable of meeting the standard of, go back to what Jesus said, how many is there who are good? Just one. And who's that? Just God. Have you kept the commandments that bring you up to God's level, level of infinite perfection in goodness? Well, no, not even close. But he hasn't seen that at all. So what to do now? Here comes the third exchange, the final question and answer in verses 20b through 22. The young man's question is, what thing do I still lack? Now, I over-translated that just to make clear. He uses a singular neuter pronoun. Like he's done all the commandments, but it feels like there's just this one thing more that he should do that he's coming short, and what is that one thing that he should do? He's not quite there yet. But again, I want to point out to you, is he, does he show any uncertainty about his ability? Not at all. Just tell me what it is so I can do it. Because I'm confident I can do it. Just tell me what it is. Tell me, point me in the right direction, and I'll get her done. And look at Jesus' response then in verse 21. Jesus said to him, well, if you wish to be complete, go, sell your belongings, and give to the poor people, and you will have treasure in the heavens, and come, start following me. Now, he's clearly not already a follower. It's something that he can start once he does all those things. Now, what, what is Jesus doing there? Well, remember what he did before. What did he do? He said, which commandments? Where did Jesus go? He went to the so-called second table of the, of the law, the horizontal commandments. But without naming it, where is he going here? He's going to the, what he will later say is the first commandment because he, the Lord God incarnate, Jesus Christ, says to the young man, here's what I want you to do. So does the young man love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, and strength? In fact, the Hebrew word that's used in Deuteronomy 6.5 suggests possessions. So does he love the Lord his God with all his possessions? Because the Lord his God here says, go sell all of it, give it to the poor. What, what, what commandment does that make you think of? Here's a hint. <clears throat> Jesus says the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the Lord his God tells the young man, go sell everything. What does Jesus say the second commandment is? Love your neighbor as yourself. And what does he tell him to do here? Sell all your goods and give them to poor people. 
So does he really love the Lord his God with all his heart, perfectly, from his youth, like he says? And does he love his neighbor as himself? Well then, that's a very different thing. (laughs) When you look at it that way, has he really safeguarded all the commandments from his youth as he claims? Well, we see the young man's sorrow in verse 22. He's not really happy with either of Jesus' answers. And he's really not happy with this answer. Because you see, he doesn't have a follow-up. There's not a follow-up. Now, I wish he had. I could suggest a good follow-up. But he doesn't have a follow-up. But when the young man heard the word, he went away saddened, sorrowing. For he was one having many possessions. Well, you see, Jesus' answer had been shocking. No rabbi would have recommended this. Alfred uh, Edersheim, an expert in in Judaism of Jesus' day, who wrote in the 1800s, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he said no rabbi would have suggested this at all. In fact, to the rabbis, poverty was a great evil. So for him to make himself poor would have been an evil thing to do, and they would have forbidden Uh, selling off all of your possessions. In fact, uh, Edersheim says to them, poverty was many times worse than all the plagues of Egypt. And here Jesus is telling him to impoverish himself, to sell everything he has. So was was this uh, the first answer you might have, any rabbi might have said that, keep the commandments. Would any rabbi have said this? No rabbi would have said this. This is a shocker. It shocks the young man and he goes away. And what happens to him after that? We don't know. You know, you can hope as I hope. He thought about it, and then there was a further dealing with him and Jesus. I hope so. But Matthew doesn't tell us that story. Matthew tells us this story to learn from. So Jesus isn't done yet because there's other people observing this that he's got a lesson for. And we haven't really come to the punchline of the story yet. We're working our way to it. So letter B, Jesus and the rattled poor men. So first we saw Jesus and the rich young man. Now he speaks to the rattled poor men. Why do I say they're poor? Peter's going to say in a few verses, we left everything for you, so they're not rich. Why do I say they're rattled? Well, we're going to see in a second. This whole thing has rattled them. In fact, I mean, what you really see first is Jesus wants to make sure they're rattled. Don't miss this. Jesus wants to make sure they're rattled because he has something important to teach them. So, number one, shocking assertion twice. And the the other Gospels make this clear too. Jesus doesn't just say this once, he says it twice. And Jesus said to the disciples, amen. Well, I mean that right there, that's him saying something, I affirm this is the truth. I'm about to tell you something that is dead on true. You better listen. Amen. I say to you that a rich man only with difficulty will enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Again, I say to you, why do you say it again? Because he wants to make sure. He, he kind of pauses between the two we learn from the other Gospels. It's like the first, first time didn't rattle them enough, so he says it again and provokes their response, which we'll see in just a moment. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. <clears throat> 
I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you have heard the story that there's a gate in Jerusalem. Don't nod or anything, please. There's a gate in Jerusalem called the Camel's Gate that was a very small gate. And camels would have to take all their stuff off and get on their knees to go through the gate. Never happened. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cute preacher story, I guess, and I hate that preacher story means not true, because of all stories, preacher stories ought to be true, but uh, this is not true. It's a lovely illustration of, that never happened. There's no evidence that there ever was a camel's gate at Jesus' time in Jerusalem. And uh, so what, what, why does he say, then, a camel through the eye of a needle? Because he takes a great big honking large massive animal and a little teeny tiny opening and he wants us to picture so do that right now picture a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle how does that work difficult that can't happen it can't there's too much no and i think this is the point there's too much of him to go through that the camel can't go through with all of what he is he'd have to become something else he'd have to lose all of his self to get through that hole. But camel's not getting through an eye of a needle, and he says, a rich man, it'd be easier for that to happen than for a rich man. What's a rich man? Well, I don't think that he means somebody who had money, because there were people who had money in Jesus' followers they used to help the poor and, and whatnot. But the issue is the attitude about possessions. The, well, obviously, this young, young man, he had a lot of riches. Did he also, was he also very full? Did he come to Jesus empty, needy, and humble? or popping full of himself, popping full of himself. The person who would say to Jesus, I've kept all the commandments, <laughs> among many other things, that person is popping full of himself. He's rich, not just in money, but in pride, in self-regard, in self-confidence, in self, self, self. So he says this twice because he wants to make sure he rattles the apostles, and he does, which he knows when he gets the reaction he obviously wanted to get in verse 25. Shocked reaction, verse 25. And when the disciples heard, they began to be extremely astonished. And now you understand why, given their background and the teaching they'd had since they were young. Began to be extremely astonished, saying, well then, who is able to be saved? Now, there's certain things that you should note down very carefully to understand this. First of all, to them, riches were a blessing, and they were. People under the, under the law of Moses had good reason to see riches as a blessing, because they were. Because God said to the nation of Israel that if they kept his commandments and cleaved to him, walked in his ways, didn't go off after idols. He'd bless their crops. He'd bless their health. He'd give them peace from their enemies, right? So if they walked with God, they would know rich blessings. The book of Proverbs frequently holds out riches as, as a, a good goal to have, that a wise person who fears the Lord in his life is going to know abundance in his life. And so riches are not seen as in themselves an evil. They're seen as a, a blessing from God, and indeed they are a blessing from God. That's not, that's not the wrong thing, but here, here is the wrong thing, is the presence of riches necessarily a sign of being right with God? And are the absence of riches necessarily a sign of being on God's bad side? Well, no, not at all. Uh, that was what Job's friends thought. And, and were they right? They were wrong. They're absolutely wrong. 
And you'll see often in the Psalms the, the Lord's love for the poor. You'll see it in the Proverbs too. Better to be poor than to be a, a, a fool. Um, and riches, there are the rich ungodly. So you can't make the immediate equation that if somebody's rich, well, then he's got to be right with God. He's got to be right in God's eyes. But that is probably the way that they saw it. That is the way rabbis saw it. The, the presence of riches meant that somebody was good with God. He was good in God's eyes. So they would have naturally seen this young man as good in God's eyes. So what Jesus says here about how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, oh my, that indeed is very, very shocking to them. Very contrary to what they thought. And I want you to notice a second thing you're noting down. Their exact wording, and this, this takes us to the point of this story. What do they ask? Do they ask uh, who is saved or who can God save? No, the way they phrase it is who is able to be saved. Now, the word is able is, and there's a point in my saying this, not just to say I know Greek. The word they use is dunatai from the verb dunamai, which means to, be, to have the power to do something, to have the ability, to have the strength, to have, have the power it takes to get something done, the necessary power for a task. Well, they're asking then, who has the power necessary to get saved? Who has the ability, who has the strength to get saved? That's their answer. Uh, they, what, what was the story of the rich young man? I remind you, and this is very, very important. Did he have any doubt about his ability to have eternal life? No. Uh, and, and what was his path for getting it? Just tell me the stuff to do. Tell, well, not stuff. There's one thing, because he'd done everything. So what is the one thing that I need to do? But no question that he can do it. He has absolute confidence in his ability to do something that would merit, that would deserve that would earn eternal life and so they ask this question well then who if rich people i mean they would certainly think rich well what do you normally pair with the word rich the rich and powerful the rich and powerful and so here's a young man their assumption is he's rich and powerful i mean he was a ruler after all and he was a fine moral young man and if he doesn't have the ability to get saved then who does have the ability to get saved now with that in your head here comes the punchline here comes the point of the whole story shocking climactic truth verse 26 how do i know it's the point of the whole story because it's the last verse in the story and because it's introduced with and jesus looked closely now look the, the Gospels are not hundreds and hundreds of pages long, are they? They're not like a James Michener novel or, or a Harry Potter even. They're, they're not hundreds of pages long. They're not filled with minute descriptions of, well, then Jesus lifted his hand and making a gesture like the fluttering of a bird's wings. You don't read stuff like that. So when you do read about something Jesus does physically, there's a point to it. Are you with me? Huh? So is there such a thing here? Yes, there is. And Jesus looked closely and said to them. He looked closely at them and he said to them. Matthew writing 10 years later, 20 years later, whatever it was, he still sees that intense look. The Lord Jesus, before he answered to their question, he looked at them, make sure he had every one of their pairs of eyes on him because of what he was about to say. He looked closely and said to them, with men, this is ad dunaton. 
Ah, dunatong. Now, I said a moment ago, who is able to be saved? Who dunatai? Who has the ability? And he says, ah, dunatong. Now, that ah is just like we have in English words. The person who is moral has morals. What's the person who has no morals? Amoral. He has no morals. And that's what that ah does here. With men, there's no ability. That's what Jesus says. In other words, if I can rephrase it, who has the ability to be saved, they ask. Jesus says, no human being has the ability to be saved. And here's the point. Not even that fine moral young man. Nobody has the ability to do a good thing and have eternal life. Nobody has the ability to, uh, <coughs> to save himself. That ability resides in nobody. Nobody has the ability... If anyone gets saved, the only way that person is getting saved is how? God saves him. This is what Jesus say. With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. A lot of Christians don't believe that. They believe that we do have the ability. But Jesus says, no, no man has the ability. The ability is with God. With God... All things, and then he uses the word dunata. So you've heard the word three times. They, they use the verb and say, who dunatai, who has the ability to get saved. Jesus says with men, it's a dunaton. It's, there's no possibility. But then he says, with God, all things are dunata. So in other words, where is the power or the ability of salvation? It's with God, and it's only with God, not with man. God does it, or nobody's saved. That's the punchline. That's what this is all about. Knowing that helps us understand the story. So now, let's get the frame of this story, Roman numeral two. A couple of things here are gonna really help us more to understand this puzzling story. Getting the frame, first of all, about the question. Now, review the question and the answer. Verse 16, teacher, what good thing shall I do in order that I may have life eternal? And then Jesus says, why are you asking me about the good? Why is it me you're asking about the good? If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. All these I've done. What thing do I lack? If you want to be complete, sell everything and then come follow me. So review that question and answer. Have that in your head and look at a totally different question and answer. Turn to Acts 16 with me. This is not going to be written on my face. Please turn there. I want us all to be looking at this. Acts 16. Now, the apostle Paul and, and, and buddies are in jail and they're singing about Jesus and salvation and then suddenly all the, there's an earthquake and all the cells come open and the jailer thinks he's done for. So he's about to kill himself. But Paul says in verse 28, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And so he takes the lights and sure enough, they're all there and there's Paul and Silas and he's heard enough in the singing and the talking whatever's transpired, to ask this question, what must I do to be saved? Do they say, keep the commandments? They do not. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your house. So why is that? Because these are different gospels? They're very different answers? No, because they're very different questions. There's not different gospels. There's not different ways to have eternal life between when Jesus was here and and now. That's not the answer to this. The fine young achiever comes to Jesus sure that he can do something and get eternal life. 
Is that the way the jailer comes to them? No. He doesn't ask for a good thing he can do to have eternal life. He asks how he can be saved. The rich young ruler comes full, expecting commendation. The jailer comes empty, knowing that he's under condemnation, just wanting to be delivered, just wanting to be saved. But he knows that if it's done, it needs to be done for him. There's not a thing he can do to earn it. He doesn't propose a, a series of moral uh, uh, reformations or improvements or spiritual deeds or anything. He wants to know how he can be passively, not have active, but be passively saved, receive salvation. And to, to him, they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He says, I've got nothing. I need saving. The young ruler says, I have everything except I think maybe missing one thing. And very different answers, but the same point, leading to the same point, the same way of salvation. Like we read at the beginning of the service, penniless people coming for free life from God. So understand that about the question. Understand this about the answer and where Jesus is, is coming from in the answer. Two scriptures will tell us why Jesus approached him the way he did when the apostles were answered differently. First, look at John 2 with me, and we'll look at John 2, verses 24 and 25. Actually, a very similar setting, but this takes us into the heart and mind of Jesus. Look at John chapter 2, and the last two verses in the chapter. Some Jews had been professing faith Verse 24 says, But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And what story comes right after that? Tell me the name. Nicodemus. How did Nicodemus come? Smelling of liquor with a prostitute on his arms, looking like an absolute wreck? No, another fine, religious, moral man comes up to Jesus and flatters him and compliments him and calls him a teacher, says he's done miracles. And what does Jesus say to him? You need to be born again. You'll never see or enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And that depends on the will of the Spirit of God. So Jesus sees in the heart of the person. And Jesus saw in the heart of this young man. And that's why he answered the young man the way he did. He saw he was just too good to be saved. Think about that. He was just too good to be saved. He's too righteous to be saved. Too moral to be saved. Too law-abiding to be saved. So what to do for this young man? To, to say, well, bow your head and pray a prayer, pfft, that wouldn't get anywhere near his heart. It wouldn't touch him where he needs to be touched. So what is it that will do that? Now turn to Romans 3 verse 20 with me. Romans 3.20. I'll start with verse 19. Point your eyeballs at that. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, declared righteous in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
So what does Jesus do for this young man? This young man was trusting in the law. So what did Jesus do for him? Showed him that the law condemned him. How did he do that? Well, he named commandments the fellow thought he'd fit, and then he brought home in personal the first and second great commandments. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and possessions? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? And the answer to both those questions was, apparently not. But now he feels it. And now the blade of the law has gone into his heart. So that's the framing we need to know. Looking at the question, looking at the answer. So now finally, getting the point. Roman numeral three, getting the point. First of all, getting the point about Jesus. Now go back to that troubling thing. He calls him teacher. Most of Jesus' non-followers called him teacher. It wasn't wrong, but it didn't go deep enough. The question is, did he really know who he was talking to? Did he come to Jesus just to get another really good rabbi's opinion because he'd already asked five or six? And, you know, everybody's had come to him. He came to Jesus really already knowing the answer. Uh, but he, so he calls him teacher. But if so, then Jesus stops him dead. And he asks, why is it me that you're asking concerning the good? Only one is good. So are you coming to me as just another teacher, just like you, making guesses into the whirlwind about things beyond our understanding? Or do you realize I can talk to you about the good because I am God? You're asking the right person, but do you know you're answering the right person? You're asking the right person. I'll just tell you brief, a brief version of a story I heard that helps me understand what's going on here. There was a, uh, a man who had top... This, is a, this, is, this never happened, so don't go off telling, oh, pastor told me the most interesting story. This never happened. It's an illustration. So in this illustration, a man had top secret clearance, and he knew all sorts of stuff that nobody else knew. And he goes uh, golfing one day, looking for a partner, and here's a guy who doesn't have a partner, and he asks... Uh, whether he'd like to partner up and play golf. And he says, sure, sounds great. He's got some friends with him who aren't golfing, so it's just going to be the two of them. His friends are just watching. So he starts, and they start talking about a great variety of things. And so he starts telling the guy, the guy asks him, well, what do you do? And he says, oh, actually, I, I have this really uh, secure job. I mean, for instance, did you, I know so many things that people don't know. For instance, he wants to impress this guy did you know this and this and this? And he tells them things that are classified that absolutely nobody should know. And so, so the guy asks him, why are you telling me about these top secrets? Don't you know nobody should know that sort of stuff except the president? And it's the president. But the guy hasn't recognized him. So does he know that he's telling the right person? Or is he absolutely, <laughs> absolutely belly flopping? And, and betraying national secrets. And so, yes, and indeed, he is asking the right person about what's good because Jesus is God incarnate. But does he know he is? And if he doesn't, then Jesus' answer, he's just going to blow away because he's another guy. But if he does know that Jesus is God incarnate, then Jesus' answer is going to be the answer of God. So the point about Jesus is Jesus is not just another teacher. When he speaks about the truth of God, he speaks the truth of God. Second, the point about righteousness, salvation, and life. Now, the rich young achiever's view was the, clearly the common Jewish view. 
He saw it the way the Pharisee did. Now, remember this. Remember back from when we studied the Sermon on the Mount. What was the common Pharisaic view of righteousness and the law? Well, they had it formulated so that if you, if you simply checked certain boxes of what you did do and didn't do, then you were righteous. And they had it all precisely you know, defined, what, what was and was not Sabbath violation. You know, you remember, you, you throw a rock in the air and, and catch it, that's a, a, a Sabbath violation because you've worked in catching the rock. You could throw a rock, but not throw it and catch it. You could not walk through a wheat field higher than your knees because then you'd be threshing. That's working on the Sabbath. So if you don't do those things, you're righteous. Even though you may have an ungodly, ungod-loving attitude on the Sabbath and do it because you think it's making you righteous and covering over your sins, but you did check the boxes. And so what Jesus does in his preaching is what? He rips the cover off of all of that and takes it down to the heart. Who do you think God is? You don't have a high enough view of God's sin, and you don't have a low enough view of, of man. I'm sorry. Don't have a high enough view of God's righteousness. I'm sure glad I heard what I said. You don't have a high enough view of God's righteousness that the jury will disregard that first version. And you don't have a low enough view of, of man's sin. You don't think God is as good as he is, and you think you're better than you are. So he takes it to the heart. Have you hated somebody? Have you lusted? And, and so forth and so on. Have you broken vows? And he brings it right down to where, well, we'll never trust our own righteousness once we understand what Jesus is saying. So the truth about the righteousness of God is that he alone is righteous and he's perfectly righteous. He's infinitely righteous. And we are sinners. We must bring perfect righteousness to him, but we have no hope of ever attaining it. I'll only enter into the kingdom of God if I come and present perfect righteousness. But I will never produce perfect righteousness. And you may be thinking, well, that's the worst sermon I've ever heard. You've just told me that nobody ever has any hope. No, no, I didn't say that. I said that nobody can ever make or achieve any hope. I can't produce that righteousness. But there is a way to that righteousness. And that's by faith alone by the grace of God alone, through the work of Jesus Christ alone. You remember Jesus told a story of two people who went to the temple, right? And one of them was very like this young man, the Pharisee. And how did he pray? God, I thank you that I did all, do all these good things, and I don't do all these bad things, and I'm not like that guy back there. And what was that guy back there? Oh, he's a bad guy. He's a tax collector. How did he pray? beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Literally, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, which one went to his house declared righteous? That guy. So it's the other guy who's coming to Jesus today. And Jesus has ripped the cover off his face, off his heart, and brought the law to bear. He does that another time. When was that? Remember the woman at the well? Jesus is at a well. He's tired. He's thirsty. A Samaritan woman comes up, and Jesus asks for something to drink. And so she, she engages in, in some banter, and they go back and forth. And Jesus says, well, you know, if you knew the gift of God and who is asking you for something to drink, you'd ask him, and he'd give you living water. And, oh, she has a little joke about that. Ha, ha, ha. And he says that he can give water that will bubble up to eternal life, and she'll never need to go and get another drink somewhere else. 
And what does she say? Give me this water. Well, (laughs) so what do you do then? I I dare say probably 90% Christians would say, all right, well, bow your head and repeat this prayer. (laughs) Because you're clearly ready to be saved. Give me this water, she says. Bow your head, repeat after me. Oh God, oh God, I know I'm a sinner, I know I'm a sinner. And and then it goes, you're saved, never doubt it again. Is that what Jesus, what does Jesus say? What is his response to her saying, give me this water that I never have to come back and drink again at this well? What's his response? Go get your husband. What? What What does that have to do with anything? Well, it has to do with the fact that she has sinned in the area of sexuality. In other words, what does Jesus do? He brings the sword of the law to convict of sin to talk to her about eternal life. As he does with this young man, because that is what needs to be done as part of the process of conversion. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 16, 24, we need to do? Deny ourselves, pick up our cross. Well, am I going to deny myself if I'm completely pleased with myself? I'm happy with myself? I'm full of myself? That sort of person isn't going to deny himself. And is he going to pick up his cross? Why would I? I love my life. I don't want to part with my life. Why would I? Ah, you see, so that work needs to be done. And what does he say in chapter 18? I remind you, when they're talking about who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven, what does he say? You need to humble yourself like this little child. Now, how do I do that when I don't think I need to be humble, when I'm proud of myself? I think I've all got it, got it all nailed down. Pretty well know all the answers. Doing a pretty good job. Sailing along nicely. Thank you. No, then that's not a person who's converting. And so Jesus does this work in his heart. He brings the conviction of the law to his heart. You know, I think of another person who this could have been. It, it wasn't. The person I'm about to mention never met Jesus. But what's another person who could have come up to Jesus and said to Jesus, Oh, I've kept all the laws since, since I was a child. Who else could have said that? I heard it. Paul. Oh, you don't think so? Turn to uh, Philippians chapter 3. And this is where we'll end today. Unless another another thought strikes me. This is where I mean to end. Philippians 3. Now, Paul's warning them about false teachers, Judaizers. Verse 2, evil workers and the mutilation where the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence of the flesh in the flesh. And then now here he goes. Listen to him. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he lists off his resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. Check, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Check, check. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, what does he say? Found blameless. What's another way of saying that? All these I have safeguarded since I was a youth. Who said that? Rich young ruler. Paul says here, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless all, but look here. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And there's his sell everything. 
But, in, but the everything is the self-righteousness, the self-confidence, the self-trusting, the self-seeking, the self-achievements. All things that were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It gets even more intense. More than that, I count all things to be loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. So what of those things is he now trusting for his salvation? None of them. Not any of them. He has gladly parted with them all. Count them but rubbish or dung would be a, a, perhaps a better translation. And who thinks, who thinks nostalgically about yesterday's dung? Well, he didn't. And that's the point. I don't miss them. I don't miss them. Rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Here it goes. Not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, which the young man had, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Or what's another way of saying that? Eternal life, which the young man was interested in, but thought to achieve by his own good works. So, with men, this is impossible. But with God, this is possible. All things are possible. And what we learn here is we need to throw off all self-righteousness, all self-confidence, all self-hope, everything that rests on our deeds, our doing, our goodness, or our refraining from badness, we need to put that all off and cry to God for mercy and look to Jesus for salvation. That's what we need to do. Put off everything of self-hope and take only the righteousness of Christ. Jesus then saw this young man the way nobody else could have or would see him. He saw him truly. He saw his heart. And his only hope was in being shattered. Not patted on his head, but shattered. And that's what Jesus does for him. He shatters him. He needed to say, not I can do it. He needed to say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus sees each of us truly as well. So what does he see looking on our hearts? Does he see even an atom of self-trust? Does he see even a sliver of self-righteousness, of self-reliance? Or does he see someone who is turned away from all self-hopes and looks only to the mercy of God in Christ? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of God. It is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that the Holy Spirit of God will send that word home to each of our hearts to humble each of us and to remind each of us the only hope that anyone can have, which is Jesus Christ and the mercy of God in Christ. And so I pray for any man, woman, or child who has been trusting in his fine religious knowledge and IQ and deeds and morality, but not in Christ alone, that the Spirit of God will so wield uh, the, the Word of God as to lead that person to despair of such hope and to turn in, to Christ wholly and seek to be found in Him alone and in His righteousness alone. 
And now as we turn to celebrate communion, which celebrates our union with Christ and His great salvation, we pray that You will magnify Him to us, humble us before Him, increase our love for the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.